Good evening. It's good to see everybody again this evening. We have a good crowd and, and visitors with us tonight, and that's such an encouragement to everyone, to me especially, and uh, I'm appreciative of your being here. Uh, I'm thankful for the group. You've been so kind to us this week, to Katie and I, and to our boys, and we really appreciate that. Of course, when you're somewhat family here, you just it, it feels weird to give thanks in those ways, but I am so thankful, uh, and of course, thankful for the food tonight from Scott and Paula. That was appreciated, and I appreciated spending time with them, as we always do. We get such a, a unique opportunity to come and to be with you guys for a week after uh, we kind of, well, of course, Katie grew up here, and I feel like I grew up here in some ways. You know, you think about the congregation where you go, that's like the second place you go after you've grown up at a place, and it kind of becomes a, a, even more of a home. It's where I developed spiritually and, and grew a lot here at the time that I was here, and so I have uh, this feels like home to me, uh, too, when I come here, and so I appreciate the opportunity to come here and be here. Uh, with you all this week. Open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to talk about commitment tonight. We've been talking about loosely the idea of being people who are citizens of a kingdom. And all week long we've been looking at different aspects of our faith and our trust in God, living in a way that says, I am a, I am a kingdom citizen. And so we've looked at different parts of that, and, and tonight we're going to talk about the commitment part. And really, this is a theme that's run through all of our lessons in some way uh, or another. So uh, earlier in the week, we talked about the resurrection, and we talked about salvation on Tuesday night. And in both of those lessons, we talked a great deal about our, our promise to God. Our side of that covenant is a big deal. Our commitment is, is a lifelong one. And so we're going to continue with that line of thinking tonight, but I want to use Isaiah as an example as we study. As we have a week of a meeting and we go through different things throughout the week and we're, it, it's a week long process and we have all these studies and it's really encouraging and we're able to spend a lot of time together, but what do we take away from it? And so many times, maybe we just fall back into our regular routines I like to think of weeks like this where we spend so much time in Bible study are what propel us to renew not only our commitment to God, but our commitment to taking that message to the world. And I appreciate the songs that TJ selected tonight because that's right in line with kind of the mindset that we need to have, that we look up and we look out to see others that are in deep need. And so as we look at Isaiah as an example of that, we were joking around last night about the different calls of the prophets. Maybe Isaiah is the one that we least identify with in some ways because he was just ready to go but there's such a challenge there a, a, a personal challenge for me because he was ready to go so we're going to look at isaiah's commitment tonight as we study together isaiah chapter 6 uh, starting in verse 1 in the year of king Isaiah's death i saw the lord sitting on a throne a lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple seraphim stood above him each having six wings with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King 
the Lord of hosts. When we talk about Isaiah's commitment, we can't really talk about his statement of commitment without first understanding what he was shown and why he was so ready to make the commitment that he made. The first thing that we see as Isaiah sets the stage for us is he tells us when this happens, right? In the year of King Isaiah's death, he sees a vision. And it's really parallel in a lot of ways, I think, to, to, to the book of Revelation, right? Because John, later in his life, sees the greatness of the glory of heaven. There's other parallels with, uh, with Jeremiah, with Ezekiel, where they get to see what God is showing them of the throne scene of heaven. And so this is what Isaiah gets to see here. And as we go back through this, it's really fascinating to show and look at the different ways that God presents himself to people throughout the Bible. But here he shows himself as a king sitting on a throne. Wouldn't that be a really comforting thought? Isaiah was one of the good kings, by the way. So Isaiah dies and you don't know what's happening next. You don't know how things are going to turn out. Maybe there's uncertainty. And Isaiah even acknowledges, I am, a, I am of unclean lips. I live among people of unclean lips. What are we supposed to do? And so God shows him a vision of a king sitting on a throne. What's well, God sitting on the throne, right? Isn't that a reminder that we need all the time? Is there ever a time that we need to forget that God is sitting on the throne? And that he's allowed Jesus now to sit at his right hand in heaven on the throne. So he's seen this beautiful picture. It says, look at the words that are used. I'm reading from the New American Standard. And so maybe your translation words it slightly differently. But he says that he was sitting on a throne lofty and exalted. That idea in a picture of what Isaiah is seeing, if we could just put it in our terms, God's sitting on a throne and he's above everything else. He's way up high and everybody is looking at him. It's the focal point in, in the throne, in the throne room. That's God's throne. He goes on and he talks about the train of his robe filling the temple. There's a picture there of glory and greatness. The greatness of the king that his robe is so long that it fills the whole temple. Here's, here's who God is. He's above everybody else. He's exalted in a way that everybody sees him and his glory fills his dwelling place. He sees God on his throne. And that creates a realization. It's not only that he sees God on his throne now, he sees those heavenly beings who are around the throne. This is another parallel thought, especially in Revelation, where we see those who are seated around the throne who were singing praise to God. He's the king. He's the one who's in, in control. Wouldn't that have been a comforting thought for Isaiah and a thought that his, he's pre passing that on to the Israelites? Yes, we're losing our king. We've lost our king. But here, there's a king that's always in control. And he's being praised and worshiped and revered. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That word there, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with that, that word is the Lord of the armies, right? The host of heaven. He is the one who is over all, right? Well, if there's somebody reigning in heaven and he's over all the host of heaven, can anybody go against that? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then their statement here is a parallel statement to his, to his robe filling the temple, right? Right? Notice what they say, the whole earth 
is full of his glory. If we doubt that God is in control, or if we doubt that God has power over all, just look in the world around us. His glory fills the earth. And they praise him in heaven from this. And then there's a parallel here in verse 4 to the, to the image at Mount Sinai when the Israelites came before God at Mount Sinai. And God spoke to them and his voice was thunder and it shook the ground and they were afraid. And you know they knew those stories. And so when God speaks in verse 4, the foundations of the threshold uh, uh, trembled at the voice of him who called out. The mighty word of God. And the whole temple was filling with smoke. It was, it was this beautiful, magnificent picture of the greatness and the majesty and the might of God. But Isaiah's commitment didn't just, it's not just that he saw God. That's a great place to start, right? I think if every one of us were to see God, it would cause us to renew our commitment to him because of his greatness, his glory, and his might. As a matter of fact, when Ezekiel sees God in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2, a very similar thing just kind of expounded. Ezekiel gets, gives us a lot, a lot more detail. It says that he fell on his face. And when he fell on his face and God spoke and told him to stand up, he couldn't lift himself up. Why? Because he had seen the glory of the greatness of God. So an angel comes and stands him on his feet so that he can hear what God has to say. So, of course, seeing God should cause us to renew our commitment. It refreshes, renews Isaiah. But there's another thing that happens here is that his, his commitment is renewed because in seeing the glory and the greatness and the holiness of God, he comes face to face with his sin. You see that in the text as we continue what we read. He says, woe is me for I am ruined. Everyone should be responding that way when we see pictures of God in the scripture. His greatness, his holiness. Woe in me for I am ruined. There is nothing in me that compares or is equal to the holiness of God. And side note, we'll get to this a little bit more in a minute. But isn't that the greatness of Jesus? That he allows us. To come back into contact with God when we are ruined. The picture of his sin that he's able to see because of the holiness of God. And I would say that for us to renew our commitment, there are times when we need to come face to face with our sin. With our, the changes that need to be made in our life. We need to come face to face so that we can see it and change it. He sees the sin of the people, Isaiah does. I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember earlier in the week, we used Peter's story with Jesus. Uh, we talked about how Jesus told Peter he needed to focus on his story there at the end of John chapter 21. But that, before that happened, Peter comes face to face with his sin. And there's a really good parallel there to this same line of thinking is that Peter looks Jesus face to face, right? Jesus, there's this image of this moment that happens when Jesus is on trial and he turns and he sees Peter as Peter is sinning, right? He's denying Jesus. And then the rooster crows and it hits him right in the face. And he goes out and he weeps. And then when Jesus asks him, who are you? What are you going to do? You love me. What are you going to do, Peter? He said, you know I love you. That renewal that came from him being confronted 
with his sin. And Peter received forgiveness. And I think we see a picture here again as we continue reading of forgiveness. We look at verse 6 in chapter 6. It says, The one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, This has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Renewal and commitment, renewal and refreshing in our faith will also come when we know that we've been forgiven. You see, for me, and now I'm going to say, I'm going to speak for me right now. When there are doubts or when I feel guilt or when I'm not sure if God has forgiven me because of my own, my own uncleanness, it's never really about God, right? But it's about me. My faith is not what it should be. My commitment's not what it should be. But that's not on God. And so we need to realize that God has offered forgiveness. He is, he is able to forgive us. And Isaiah here is confronted with the realization, I think, also of forgiveness. Your iniquity is taken away. The two aspects here uh, that lead to Isaiah's commitment to his answer are confession, right, and repentance. Confession, repentance, and forgiveness. And we can't ignore that progression because the progression of acknowledging our sin and repenting, changing, leading to forgiveness. We see that here with Isaiah. We see that in other places in Scripture. And we have to point those things out as a reminder that our covenant, our commitment, our strength and our faith are renewed when we acknowledge sin and trust God's forgiveness. Isaiah then is able to answer the call. And I think really it's only then, right? It's not that I'm doubting who Isaiah was before this happened. It's not really about that at all. Isaiah was a prophet of God. He was a faithful man of God. But the progression here is so significant to what happens next. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Now, we have to keep reading a little bit because this is important too. In verse 9, he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant. The houses are without people and the land is utterly desolate. And the Lord has removed men far away. And forsaken places, forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now there's a promise of something better coming at the end there. But really, what you see is Isaiah commit. He says, I'm ready. Send me. Let's go. And then God says, okay, now that you've committed, let me tell you what you're going to do. And I read that, I'm like, that kind of sounds unfair. <laughs> you know, God, tell me what I'm up against before you tell me, ask me to do it. 
But that's not really how faith works, right? Nowhere in scripture is that how faith works. Actually, we find people who are ready to go and do whatever God says before they fully see the picture of what God is asking them to do. Why? Because they know who God is and they trust him. And they understand that he is the source of forgiveness and he is the source of cleanness. And so you have pictures like Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where God just says, get up and go to the land I'm going to show you. Well, how long am I going to be there? Wait, where is this land? I've, I've got a pretty good life here in earth. Why are you asking me to do this? Abraham didn't say any of At least it's not recorded that he said any of those things. He left. And the Hebrew writer tells us that by faith, he left. And we could go on and on with examples of people in scripture who did what God said before they knew the full picture of what they were being asked to do. I think that's one of the great things about the idea of someone who comes to Christ and they are buried in the waters of baptism and we'd say they're a babe in Christ. They have no idea what the rest of their life is going to look like. They may be young, they may be old. They don't know what the future holds. But they know what they believe. And that's really, really important. Because if we know what we believe, then it really doesn't matter what the future holds. right? Because we know who's on the throne. We know that He is able to forgive us of our sins. And at the end of the day, what else is there, right? Not to oversimplify, but commitment comes from the greatest acknowledgement of those things. And so Isaiah answers the call and then God tells him, nobody's going to listen. And there's going to be some who remain. And through that descendant, I think there's a promise there of Jesus in verse, in verse 13. But that's not really the, the main point of what God's telling Isaiah. He's saying, you're going to go talk and they're not going to listen. And, and they're going to be dull of hearing. And they're going to be insensitive and they're not going to take what you say. And Isaiah said, how long? And that, what have I, it's almost, what have I signed up for? And God says, until it's finished, until it's complete, until the cities are destroyed, devastated without inhabitants, houses are without people. He doesn't actually give him a, a timeline, right? Just until the work is complete. We need to be people who are constantly renewing our commitment. And I think one of the great things about a week like this is not that we just have it on our calendar every, every quarter or however often. We have a gospel meeting and so that's just what we do. But it's about renewing and refreshing and getting back into the word and spending a whole week. One of the greatest things that I, I appreciate so much that happens at Jennings, everywhere else, is by the end of the week, you would think everybody would be exhausted and just like heading for the door at the end of the night after the meeting. And that's not really the case. Last night, everybody was here longer than they had been any night before. But I think we find that when we renew not only our faith, our confidence in God, it also helps us to renew our bond with one another, which as we talked about earlier in the week is a vital part of who we are as God's people. And so we need things like this. So we need to be able to renew our commitment in the way that we would be pleasing to God in a similar way that Isaiah does. Uh, we need to acknowledge that we've seen the glory of God. We see the glory of God through his word. We see the glory of God through his people. And we see the glory of God even by our own faith. We look at all these stories and the examples. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that we walk by faith and not by sight. 
that we're living in a way that knows where we're going. And that whole context of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 is really about dealing with uncertainty of death and the failing body and the, uh, in, in the impending judgment. And his solution is kind of sandwiched right there in the middle of that section. We walk by faith and not by sight. We see who God is. And I would say that as we see who God is through his word, that means that we're taking time not only just to read God's word, but to meditate on his word. I am not against daily Bible reading, so please don't take that away from what I'm about to say. But I think so many times we use a daily Bible reading as a checklist. Like, all right, I've done my God thing for today. I read my five chapters. I couldn't tell you anything that I just read because I sped read it just to make sure that I get done with it. And I'm going to go on to the next thing that I have to do. Maybe we could benefit more from reading less at a time and meditating on it. Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4 that we're supposed to, the way that we find the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension and it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus is through prayer. But then he follows that up by dwell on these good things. What good things, Paul? Where are the best things that we could dwell on? We put our mind on the word and we focus on his teaching and what he would have us to do and how he would have us to live. And we meditate on those things have a really good friend who is a Bible reading guru. That's how I think of him in my mind. Right? And he has all these great different ideas about how his reading should go. And it's not about reading the Bible. It's about understanding God's will. And so he made the point one time as he was talking to us about reading his Bible, he asked the question, how often do you read your Bible out loud? And so somebody's like thinking like, oh, you mean like when we get up and read at the church building? And so they said maybe like once a week, right? And he's like, oh, so you, you do this once a week? You go in your home and in your room and you shut the door and you read your Bible out loud to yourself? And they're like, oh, no, I just meant like the public Bible reading at the church building. And he was like, well, let me challenge you to go home, close the door and read your Bible out loud. And his whole point was that it makes our mind think differently, focus differently. Dwell on what we're reading differently. And, and the, the benefit of that is that we get to see the glory of God. Right? It all comes back to us focusing on who God is and trying to see Him in His Word. And so if we find value in that, then we're going to find different ways to stay engaged in what we're trying to dwell on and meditate on. I thought that was so good. He also makes the point that 10 minutes is 1% of our day. And so he, his point is, you know, in the Old Testament, they were supposed to tithe. That would be two hours. So what if we tithe our reading to God? Now, two hours is a lot bigger chunk than 10 minutes, right? You know, we, we do math pretty well in our heads that way. Right? How often do you spend two hours doing things that you want to do throughout the day? I'm not talking about work. I'm not talking about stuff that you're obligated to do. I'm just talking about things that you want to be doing. And that's the point that he was making. And I'm not saying like, all right, Nick said you got to read your Bible two hours every day. That's not, again, the greater point is what do we place value in and how are we meditating on these things so that we can see the glory of God? And then, of course, through his people, how do we value 
the people that we're with. We talked about this a lot Wednesday night, so I'm not going to dwell on that point too much, but I just want to make the point that we see that we should be able to see the glory of God through our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we don't value time with our brothers and sisters in Christ, then maybe we're not seeing the value that God intends for us to see in that. That we should be able to see him through his people. When we do that, when we're meditating on his word, when we're focusing on him, we can't help but notice how holy he is. We can't help but notice his standard for our lives and how he wants us to live because it's all in his book, right? On every page. And so we must come face to face with our sin. Ephesians 5 talks about the light shining in the darkness and uncovering all the wickedness and the, and the horrible things. And we look at that. Um, and as a matter of fact, let's just read that section real quick. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. When we are in the word, when we're studying, when we're with God's people, you know, sometimes that can be really challenging. Why? Because maybe we come face to face with our dark parts, the dark things in our hearts and the things that need to change. And that shouldn't cause us to pull away. It shouldn't cause us to stop reading. It should cause us to be thankful. We have in some form come in contact with the light of God and it's exposed the darkness that needs to be changed. We need to come face to face with our sin so that by the mercy and grace of God, we can have forgiveness. We've been offered forgiveness through his son. We see different pictures of this all throughout scripture. And we read this earlier in the week. So we're going to turn back over here and look at it again. John chapter one, uh, John, first John chapter two, I'm sorry. First John chapter two. Chapter 1, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2, he says in verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected by this. We know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he Christ walked. We have hope. We have a standard. 
But how do we know that we've come to know God? How do we know that we've come to know Jesus? It's by how we respond to seeing Him. How our life changes because we've seen Him. Do we keep His commandments? We can't say that we've come to know Him if we've come face to face and we don't change. Then we haven't really come to know God. I think about Paul, Saul of Tarsus, right? This is the physical representation of this in the New Testament. As he comes to the road on the Damascus, going to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him on the road. And you want to talk about somebody who completely changed. He was confronted face to face, as really nobody else in the New Testament was, with his sin and his persecution of the brethren. And what did he do? He became a whole new person. And if you doubt that, he immediately, in Acts chapter 9, started preaching that Jesus was alive. I mean, he goes to Damascus. Three days later, he's baptized. He gets up and he starts preaching. And it causes such a problem that the brethren in Damascus have to sneak him out of the city and send him away because they're trying to kill him. The Jews are. Because he's supposed to be coming to squash this rebellion of Jewish people. And instead, he's encouraging it. Why? What changed so drastically in Saul's life? He came face to face with the glory of the Lord. He saw Jesus on the throne. And he was confronted with his sin. And when he was offered forgiveness, he took it. Ananias said, arise and be baptized and have your sins washed away. Don't you know what that meant to Saul of Tarsus after he had been confronted by Jesus who was alive saying, why are you persecuting me? Why were you standing there in approval? I think the text would, have, would agree with that. In approval as Stephen was stoned. How can, can you imagine? I'm sure we can, right? Because we understand what it feels like to be in sin. To be away from God. To know that we have done something that was displeasing or separating us from His love. And what did we need? Forgiveness. And Jesus said, go find Ananias. He's going to tell you what to do. And what did Ananias offer through Jesus? Forgiveness. To be purified. To be made holy. So as we kind of close up our thoughts tonight, we have to end with this question. Who will go for God? Who will answer the call? Now, I don't know what that looks like in your life because for Isaiah, he was a prophet and God said, I need somebody to go say a really hard message. And Isaiah said, pick me. You know, we were talking about this last night, like Isaiah, there's a group of people and God says, I need somebody. And Isaiah's over in the back, jumping up and down. I want to do it. Pick me. I'm the one. You know, that might be a slight exaggeration, but that zeal, that excitement and enthusiasm for serving the Lord, that's what we need to find. So that when there's something that needs to be done, so that when there's somebody who is asking questions about the Bible, we don't shy away. So that when there's a visitor who comes in, we're the first one to meet them at the door and encourage them and find ways to study with them or show them Jesus. Whatever that looks like. There is nothing too small. We talked about this Wednesday night. There is no body part that's too small or insignificant. Those who are insignificant are more honorable. It's about the zeal and the desire to say, 
I'm right here, God. What do you want me to do? I'm ready. I'll do it. Are we ready to answer God's call? You know, I think about this in the terms because uh, one TJ led this song, but also when we think about John chapter four, isn't Jesus trying to get his disciples to say, I'm ready to go. And they are asking all these superficial questions like, why are you talking to this woman? Why are we going through Samaria? This doesn't make any sense. We're not supposed to talk to these people. We're not supposed to talk to women the way that you're doing. That's Jesus. Don't you understand how things work? And at the end of that story, Jesus says, look up because they're worried about food. That's a, a random theme throughout the New Testament. It's the apostles concerned with food. <laughs> but Jesus says, look up. The fields are white for harvest. And I love that picture in the context of that chapter in that story. Because Jesus is teaching this woman. He takes this opportunity. And then what does she do? She goes and tells everybody she knows about Jesus. And then everybody that she knows comes out to meet him. And Jesus says, see, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're trying to do. We need to be ready to answer the call. And what that means sometimes is that we need to look up and look out. We have seen the Lord. We have received his forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. And we have a wonderful message that the whole world can receive forgiveness through the Son of God. Let's take that out. Let's not let anything stop us from spreading that message. We may have to change the technology we use or the mode with which we take the message out. Whatever that is, let's not let any of those things slow us down because we have the most important, most valuable message that anyone has ever come across. Forgiveness of sins that leads to eternal life because Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. Doesn't matter who's ruling in any other nation in the world, in ours or anywhere else, Jesus is on the throne. And that should give us the zeal and the courage to be what God wants us to be. If you need help or encouragement tonight, or if there's anything that the congregation here can do for you by way of prayers, maybe there's somebody here who's never obeyed the gospel. And you're here and you're listening to the things that we've been saying and you realize that you need forgiveness. And you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and raised up to walk in service to Him. Ready to say, here am I, send me. We would love and rejoice with you if you're making that decision tonight. Whatever your need is, whatever the case may be, we're going to stand and sing a song for our encouragement.